This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. AI is making waves in every field it touches. President Biden is now on TikTok and the election draws closer each day. With so much going on in the world, it is hard to keep up with it all, let me tell you. Hi, I'm Kai Rizdal, the co-host of Make Me Smart. It's a podcast from Marketplace. And every weekday, Kimberly Adams and I break down the latest in business and the economy with short daily episodes to make it easy for you to stay in the know. Listen to Make Me Smart wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, you're listening to the New Yorker Poetry Podcast. I'm Kevin Young, poetry editor of the New Yorker magazine. As you may know, on this program, we ask poets to pick a poem from the New Yorker archive to read and discuss. Then we ask them to read a poem of their own that's been published in the magazine. Today, my guest is Vijay Shashatri. His work has been honored with the James Laughlin Award and the Pulitzer Prize in Poetry, and he recently became poetry editor of the Paris Review. Vijay, welcome. Thanks so much for being here. Thanks for having me, Kevin. So the poem you've chosen to read today is The Moon and the Yew Tree by Sylvia Plath. What about this poem struck you as you were looking through the archive? Well, it struck me that The New Yorker had published this poem in a two-page spread after she had died, right before the American edition of Ariel came out. And uh, I thought that was fascinating. And I've always looked at that spread, which has a bunch of other poems, including this one, and this is the very last one on that two-page spread. And uh, this one kept coming back to me with a certain insistence because of purely technical qualities that have reinterested me in it. I mean, I've been reading Plath since, you know, the early 70s, and uh, and I know the poems well, and sometimes they just dazzle me, and sometimes I don't read them for five or six years. And uh, But it had been on my mind, and I had been reading this and other poems in Ariel recently because of certain aspects of rhythm and sonic body and stanzaic structure that I thought would be useful for me. Well, let's hear the poem. Uh, here is Vijay Shashadri reading The Moon and the Yew Tree by Sylvia Plath. The Moon and the Yew Tree. This is the light of the mind, cold and planetary. The trees of the mind are black. The light is blue. The grasses unload their griefs on my feet as if I were God, prickling my ankles and murmuring of their humility. Fumi spiritus misinhabit this place, separated from my house by a row of headstones. I simply cannot see where there is to get to. The moon is no door. It is a face in its own right white as a knuckle and terribly upset. It drags the sea after it like a dark crime. It is quiet with the O gape of complete despair. 
I live here. Twice on Sundays the bells startle the sky, eight great tongues affirming the resurrection. At the end they soberly bong out their names. The yew tree points up. It has a gothic shape. The eyes lift after it and find the moon. The moon is my mother. She is not sweet like Mary. Her blue garments unloose small bats and owls. How I would like to believe in tenderness. The face of the effigy, gentled by candles, bending on me in particular its mild eyes. I have fallen a long way. Clouds are flowering, blue and mystical over the face of the stars. Inside the church the saints will be all blue, floating on their delicate feet over the cold pews, their hands and faces stiff with holiness. The moon sees nothing of this. She is bald and wild, and the message of the yew tree is blackness, blackness and silence. That was a very powerful reading. Uh, that was The Moon and the Yew Tree by Sylvia Plath, which was originally published in the August 3rd, 1963 issue of the magazine. So tell me what struck you beyond of the rhythm. You were mentioning the rhythm was really important. I see it all over, but I'm curious what you see. Yeah. I mean, when we talk about poetry, I think we're dealing with complicated ideas of rhythm and sonic effects, which we don't really have a precise understanding of. And as poets, we probably don't want to have a precise understanding of them. Sure. You know? One of the things that always struck me about Plath is that when she dazzled me, I could catch her music. And when she didn't dazzle me, when sort of the poems were opaque to me, and this has happened in my reading her for over 40 years now, you know, I couldn't catch the music. And then finally, you know, maybe about 10, 12 years ago, I started catching the music all the time. And in this case, with this particular poem, there were two things that interested me about it, that the, that the musicality is so subdued, but it's there, and you sort of have to reach for it. And it's because she makes the tone of the poem so clinical. If you look at it, she's writing, she's almost like a clinician writing down the notes of her despair in some <laughs> way, you know? Well, I, I feel like she's also... Um declaring in ways that I don't think you always see in a poem, the moon is no door. Right. You know, it is a face in its own right. Everything feels like settled and proven, but then she constantly is changing that. Yeah. So the moon is this, the, mo the trees of the mind are black, the light is blue. Mm. I mean, it's very simple, declarative, exactly. uh, but there's something very complicated, a kind of undersong yeah. coursing through the poem. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think the interesting thing about this poem is that she's backing away from the sonic obligations of the poem rather than, you know, driving into them. She's retreating from them and letting kind of the sonic obligations somehow follow her. And <laughs> she's, then she's sort of dragging them after her like a dark right. crime. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. And uh, that 
had such a there's a such a sense of gothic ominousness yeah. coursing through. I mean, you know, some of these images are familiar and some aren't. And I think you know, white as a knuckle takes this kind of cliche of being white knuckled and right. turns it, you know, pulls it apart. Sure. And she does that throughout the poem, sort of pulls things apart, puts sure. them back together. Yeah, yeah. It's not just a tragic poem; it's a horror poem in some way. You know, yeah. Halloween. Yeah, right? it feels it feels apt uh, for yeah. the season. Yeah, uh, it's autumnal, but it's also more stark, wintry. You yeah. know, like you picture this is the light of the mind, cold and planetary, which is so different. It's not lunar only. It, it, it's larger. It's global. You know, mm-hmm. and and that's she somehow manages to make it not uh, sort of the fallacy that, you know, the rain is crying for me. Right. She somehow is sort of showing you that tug mm-hmm. uh, that we're talking about. Yeah. No, it's an astonishing achievement, I think. And, uh, and it was particularly useful to me because, you know, I think this is also true of your work. We both tend to kind of turn the poem from line to line. You know, mm-hmm. we have that sense of that downward movement of the poem as opposed to the severe end stop poem and the rigor of the stanza in some way. She's exactly the opposite, which is why it was so useful for me technically <laughs> right, right. just to kind of feel how solid everything is, how everything is like a headstone in its place, you mm. know, sort of, you know. Each syllable is sort of unmovable, and each line is unmovable, and each sentence seems unmovable. But they, they seem artfully arranged as well. Yeah. I mean, I love those lines. With the O gape of complete despair, I live here. Those little right. slant rhymes and uh, blue and pews toward the end. Right. Um, even holiness and silence. Yeah. Those S sounds. She yeah. really nails oh, yeah. that uh, feeling yeah. and sound. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we tend to think of Sylvia Plath as a poet of power, and we don't sufficiently understand, you know, how sensitive and subtle she can be. I mean, I feel like people sometimes understand her too much as only sensitive. And here I feel like she says, the grasses unload their griefs on my feet as if I were God. Right. You know, there's a kind of proclamatory quality that I feel is a claim of... uh, the import of this feeling yeah. and the import of this scene. Yeah. That I, you know, she reaches for uh, Christian myth. She reaches for Mary. She reaches yeah. for sort of resurrection. And, right. uh, you know, I remember reading dutifully in high school that yew trees were right. a symbol of immortality. Sure, yeah. <laughs> and so there's this kind of really, yeah. she's really in uh, British and American poetry's tradition. Sure. And she's, but she's wreck and shop. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, she's deconstructed all of that stuff. I mean, what would be the religious source of this poem? I mean, you couldn't figure it out, right? I mean, somehow, you know, in high school, they want you to hunt illusions and metaphors and stuff like that. So they tell you about that. But somehow it's not even a subversion of Christianity. It's not even a post-Christian world. It's a post-post-post-Christian world, you know, which retains some of the power of those religious images without kind of you know, ever interpreting that power. But in terms of her sensitivity, yeah, she's considered psychologically sensitive, and of course she is. But I think what I was talking about was rhetorical sensitivity, you know, because she seems to be a powerful rhetorician. 
but we don't tend to think of her as a delicate rhetorician so much, and she actually is. And I, the perfect example for that is, for me, in, in, in that regard, is the turn in the poem, which is so silent. It comes in the third stanza. The moon, the moon is my mother. She is not sweet like Mary. Her blue garments unloose small bats and owls. And you have that declaration that you were talking about there. And then the subtle shift, which is where the feeling of the poem kind of rises for a moment. How I would like to believe in tenderness. And that kind of comes out of nowhere in this kind of very stately rhetorical movement of simple sentences and declarations, you know, and and that's the turn in the poem. But you hardly notice it, you know. Yeah, no, it, it kind of blows by. Yeah. You know, it's indicated mostly by the dash in some way, you know. And then you <laughs> I realize, love a dash. Yeah. I mean, you know, she's she's sort of um it's such a it's the private moment in the poem in a way. Yeah. How I would like to believe in tenderness. Yeah. And then it's the tenderness of the effigy, which right. is even not like a physical body, but sure. this metaphoric sure. tenderness. Yeah. Yeah. And it's powerful. Yeah, no, it's wonderful. You know, it's not the raging Sylvia Plath. It's not the angry Sylvia Plath. It's the Sylvia Plath who has almost been completely exhausted by despair, you know, mm-hmm. and yet can produce this poem. You know, there's a... But there's a wildness in the poem, and, and there's something about that wildness that I think, for me, there's a tension between the declarative part, the end stopped, as you're talking about, and the wildness that's roaring beneath. And it's something I see in Elizabeth Bishop, who we've talked about for many years. Right, um, sure. And, you know, that's what makes Bishop, for instance, very powerful, is people sometimes try to write poems like Bishop, but they're like animal poems, right. as opposed to poems about this roaring, raging thing just held together by form. Sure. And you feel a little of that here, I think. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I th- I'm sure she read Bishop during this time, you know. Yeah. She was reading everything. Yeah. You know? And, uh, I mean, there's detail, you know, just like a classic Bishop poem, mm. and, you know, very real specificity, but it's all pointing in the opposite direction of Bishop, you know. What do you think Bishop is pointing? Well, I mean, I think Bishop has a strong sense of a cosmic order, Hmm. you know, and it really reveals itself in her, you know, the last book, all those poems that came out in The New Yorker in the 70s. And uh, she's a classical writer who's creating a classical order. And Sylvia Plath is absolutely individuated. You know, there it's very, very hard to see her as an exemplar of anything hmm. but her own situation and condition. And but I think she's speaking for a lot of people for people. I mean, readers are drawn to her, I think, because she speaks of in an individual way, right. but of this tradition that some would say was exhausted. Mm-hmm. You know, And in a way, this poem is is taking apart, as we talked about, but also sort of looking at the pieces yeah. of the English uh, poet, yeah, exactly. poetic tradition. Sure, um, I think Bishop is interested in saying that she's going to, uh, you know, not lose that, <laughs> but sometimes she does. You know, I mm-hmm. think she the effort is is uh, marked. I yeah. think 
in bishop and is is part of the power. Yeah. Here I find, you know, the power is just in those leaps. Yeah. You know, and in the willingness to just say it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, one of the things, one of the differences between them is what we were talking about earlier that, you know, Bishop is much more liquid. Hmm. You know, the poem is flowing. You know, you can feel its flow. And Plath is using white space and she's using enjambment in a lot of her poems. But she's always pulling the poem back kind of into its phrase and into its stanza in some way and into a kind of internal energy that you can't quite get a hold of. You know, there are poets who kind of, they look at you and they talk to you. And there are poets who sort of, you know, look sideways and you're sort of overhearing them. There are some poets who turn their back on you and you don't hear them at all. They're muttering. You know, the late poems of Celan are like, are like that, you know. It's like there's this guy on the stage with his back to the audience and you can, can't quite make out what he's saying. You know, and uh, and this is not a poet who is facing us. She's facing something else. Plath, yeah. you mean? Plath, yeah. You think, think she's sideways, or do you think she's I don't Miles know. Davis turned away? Yeah, I mean, I think you know, there's that Miles Davis aspect of her, you know, and uh, well, and she that ends with silence, you know, which is yeah. you know Miles Davis in a silent way. He, sure, he's just as interested in those gaps between the notes. Sure, uh, I feel that here with her. Sure. Sure. I mean, Miles is always swallowing, you know, in some way, and she is doing that too. And it doesn't have to do with avant-garde or anything like that. If you listen to someone like Eric Dolphy, he's full frontal in some way. He's like really coming at you to communicate something, you know, and uh, and not asking you to come to him. And, uh, and she's asking us to come to her in some way that Elizabeth Bishop I don't think is. Sylvia Plath in these poems is not a social poet. I mean, there's just mm. no way you can kind of construe that. Do you think it's like um, uh, Dickinson in that way? Well, yeah, I mean, there's some Dickinson poems, but some Dickinson poems are very transparent to the reader. Yeah, and, uh, but there's a terror that Dickinson is happy to tell you about. Yeah, and or happy to describe. Sure. Yeah, you know, maybe she's not telling it to you as your to use your formulation. She's yeah. not facing you. Right. But she's she. There's a pleasure even in that that I think she takes that I think is really remarkable. I feel it in Plath. I couldn't always point to where it yeah. is. Yeah. Uh, maybe it's just in that dash yeah. after uh, how I would like to believe in tenderness. I know. Yeah. 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 What a moment. You know. And the discipline it takes to underplay that, to keep it so sotto voce, you know, and not kind of, you know. I mean, it's, that hard, really... it's hard. If you, like if you're Miles Davis, it's hard not to just play that right? the yeah. first thing or your Coltrane and sure. you know, the first bars. Wouldn't you just blow it all out? Yeah, I would. Right. Yeah. And then waste it. And, you yeah. know, you're right that there's a level of control and, and patience. Yeah. I think that's the thing about the poem is it, it does have this patience. Um, I'm curious about the sort of understated or, or maybe it's overstated blackness in the poem, the yeah. blueness. There's all this color, which feels like more than just color, of course. Yeah. Um, but I also think there's a kind of um, uh, outer space quality. Yeah. Maybe that's the gothic in it. That yeah. She's not inter- Things are not things. Yeah. You know, and it's not a William, Carlos Williams poem in yeah. that 
the things are all that there is. There's way more happening than sure. than the things themselves. Yeah. Yeah. I just saw the new version of Halloween. Did you see it? The, Jamie Lee Curtis is an no, old woman. I didn't see it. Yeah. I didn't see it. And and I was thinking, you know, I think I was watching it this weekend after a period of frustration. It was on cable, like okay. maybe HBO. And I, you know, kept coming back to this film when I was watching it. It's an interesting, uh, the difference between horror and the gothic. Yeah, it's, I know. it's thin. Yeah. Um, but, you know, there's a, there is, you know, we were talking about order. There is an order in the gothic. You know, yeah, there is a absolutely, sense sure. to be made. It's not... Uh, only human sense. You know, yeah. the natural world will pull your mansion down. Right. You know, the heart will still beat beneath the floorboards. There's a, there's a, but it is a sensible, vengeance-filled, uh, you know, ripe with meaning uh, world yeah. that is at risk always because, you know, the world is risky. Sure. All right. Well, in the January 1st, 2019 issue of the magazine, the New Yorker published your poem, Cliffhanging. Mm-hmm which you'll read for us in a moment. Uh, before you do, is there anything you want us to know about the poem? Uh, well, the reason I chose the Plath poem was that I was thinking of reading this. And in some sense, this might sound crazy, but there was a certain point at which I became terrified of the stanza break. <laughs> These are the kind of neuroses of the poet, right? You know, like, you know, that white space between, you know, one stanza and the other seemed to be this vast gap that I couldn't really negotiate. And I felt comfortable writing slabs. And uh, and I said, wow, this is crazy. I got to get over this. And I went back to Plath. And I went back to this poem specifically, The Moon and the Yew Tree, and sort of recognized the solidity of the stanza and the value of not making the movement of the poems liquid, of sort of s- pulling back and end stopping the lines and keeping a certain sort of solidity to both line and stanza. So that was kind of the underlying formal consideration of this poem. And I wanted the sort of rhetorical and emotional aspects of the poem to fall into line with that. And, uh, I mean, I don't think you can quite hear it, but I definitely saw it because I write for the page and not necessarily for the ear primarily, you know. Well, well, let's hear it. Let's hear it. Yeah. Here's Vijay Seshadri reading his poem, Cliffhanging. Cliffhanging. The forces out to kill us with their benevolence are more crazed now than they were when you were alive. And more focus, too. Our ingratitude excites them. They're bubbling with remedies. Their providential impulses are a nimbus of knives. Their need to tell us they love us, love us, with all their love in vain. You said before you died that this would happen. Thanks for the warning. You didn't let me know, though, that even our phantom selves would come after us crawling out of the poems we made. They don't care about the transparent skin we wrapped them in so they could watch their organs pulsing within. All they know is that we made their eyes too bright. They see more than they can stand, more than we ever could or would. They see the unending savagery 
that we could never really bear to see, and so we consigned our sight to them. They hate us for it. They've cut the phone lines and are chainsawing the front door. I'm a little worried about myself because all this hostility from every quarter bothers me, much less than it should. Why the disconnect? I can't figure it out. And it's long past time to take precautions. The great wave that breaks through the crust of the world is rising and rising and lifting me far inland, only to suck me back and drop me dangling by one arm on the edge of the half-eaten cliff. I won't let myself fall, but I don't want to pull myself up. I'm ambivalent. I'm ambivalent forever now. But if you were here, looking down on me and saying, Grab my hand, grab my hand. I would, I know, I surely would. That was cliffhanging. You come to the New Yorker Radio Hour for conversations that go deeper with people you really want to hear from, whether it's Bruce Springsteen or Questlove or Olivia Rodrigo, Liz Cheney, or the godfather of artificial intelligence, Jeffrey Hinton or some of my extraordinarily well-informed colleagues at The New Yorker. So join us every week on The New Yorker Radio Hour, wherever you listen to podcasts. So, wow, Jay, that, that poem. I've read it, I know it, um, but to hear it... Uh, you bought it. <laughs> yes, uh, and to see it, you can see why I picked it, uh, hearing it aloud. It's so powerful. I was thinking when I was reading it again and hearing you read it that it was an elegy, but not just for a person. Though the you uh, comes across as someone who is no longer here, who the speaker is missing. Yeah. Um, you said before you died that this would happen. Thanks for the warning. You didn't let me know, though, that even our phantom selves would come after us. And what I love that turn in that second stanza. And as you mentioned before reading the poem, if the poem had been, uh, you know, not at stanza, mm -hmm. that would get lost, I think. This turn in the middle, this, this um, moment, this extended kind of riff and metaphor right. off these poems coming to life. But as in a horror movie, they're kind of zombie-like. Right. We've made their eyes too bright. They see more than they can stand, more than we ever could or would. They see the unending savagery. Right. Yeah. Tell me about that. Well, you know, it is about a person. And uh, it's someone you know, Tom Lux, yeah. who was, you know, uh, a great friend to me from the time I was 19 on. And, uh, you and know, a terrific poet and yeah, wonderful force poet. In, the, in the world. Yeah. Yeah, and a wonderful friend and kind of a wonderful teacher to a lot, of, you know, mentor to many, many people. You know, not just me, but, you know, a whole host of people. And uh, so the poem, in some sense, I don't think I write poems about poetry, usually. You know, but this is really a poem that's also about poetry. I mean, it's and it's a kind of intersection of a friendship and a faith in something, a faith in a craft and a, a continuity of an allegiance to 
something that you do that is sort of essential to your being. And, uh, and that, I think, for all poets, is transmitted to us through others, other poets, right? Mm. And uh, it, it's a very sort of uh, personal and individual thing. And I, and I suppose it is for many things that people do well, that they come to it through other individuals. And, uh, and I think Tom was certainly very, very important for me. But I don't think I would have written an elegy for him unless I thought about, I was thinking about what was happening in the second stanza and the third stanza. You know, the second stanza especially. That, that's what you said before you died, this would happen, and ends with that chainsawing, that amazing right. horror movie image. Right, yeah, yeah. That, you know, that ourselves, you know, are kind of coming after us. And the the ambiguity of sort of the imaginative life in relationship to the real life, that in some sense we engage things in our poetry that don't we don't quite ever engage in the world, and we use poetry to deflect that. Whether that's true or not, it was a nice trope to work there. And, uh, and I think, I sort of wanted to say something about the savagery, <laughs> but that's all I could say, that it was, you know, we see the endless savagery, right? That, and is that uh, of the poem or of the world? Or? Of the world, yeah, yeah, the savagery of the world that we somehow filter through our poems in some way if we're serious, but that's not the same as actually confronting it. And so there's that disconnect in everybody's life, I think, whether they're poets or not, between, you know, their moral recognitions and their human activity, which is quotidian and has to be. And uh, and so that kind of transaction is the sort of transaction that was introduced to me through my engagement with literature. And, you know, and Tom Lux was one of the vessels of that engagement. And I think that was the thing I had, you know, like when someone's gone, they're gone. Mm. You know, and it's sort of, it's so obvious, you know, but you never really recognize it. it's force until you lose someone, you know, yeah. it's an obvious thing. It's like, I remember after our kid was born, you know, when we took him out for the first time, the baby, you know, my wife, we were driving around the Upper West Side looking for a place to park and. My wife, Suzanne, was looking around at all the people, and she said, all these people had a mother. <laughs> and it just blew her mind, right? All these people had a mother, you know, that they were in somebody's belly and they came out. And saying when someone is gone, they're gone, it's the same sort of thing. It's like, yeah, it's so obvious you don't think about well, it. But There seems like a tension in the poem between what you're saying, like, when you're gone, you're gone, but also the kind of warning that the dead give and that the poems kind of give. Right. There's a, there's a kind of, uh, if you listen hard enough, it almost implies, or if you craft the thing well enough, maybe it won't come after us. Right. You know, but there's a kind of, uh, I didn't believe it or I wasn't aware of it. You said this, mm -hmm. but, uh, you know, I wasn't quite ready to hear. Right. And I think there's almost that with the poems, too. The poems uh, personified in that second stanza, um, you know, we could never really bear to see, so we consigned our sight to them. Right. They, while they are pained by their sight, they actually see better than the, the poets or than us walking around. Right. 
Um, and that's there's something really powerful about that because then, in the end, when the speaker is is swept away right. and is 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 hanging on literally, um, who to who to reach to, and I, I think there's almost an implied choice that the speaker reaches not necessarily to back to the poems right. but to this person to right. the you to the beloved to yeah. the the missing uh, absolutely you know or the relationship is the important thing you know that the relationship is possible you know that it can be forged that it can kind of occur you know the the poem ends of course in the subjunctive mood if you were here and so it's not declarative in the sense yeah, that, you no, know, it's not. it's not declarative, it's subjunctive, but that is actually a kind of state of mind, too. Yeah, the of course. subjunctive mood represents a state of mind. I'm ambivalent. I'm ambivalent forever now. Yeah. I mean, I like that it doesn't end there. It ends with this possibility yeah. of reaching out. Sure. Yeah. And someone being there. Yeah. I also love that you smuggled in some Robert Johnson. Right. In the end of the first stanza, yeah, absolutely. Uh, can you, I mean, is this a blues? You know, uh, all their love in vain, uh, all my love in vain. Is that is that part of uh, the the matrix that makes up this poem? Yeah, I mean, I've been throwing in little taglines like that, you know, and uh, and you know, and I think Robert Johnson was very important to me because that first stanza is about people like the speaker and like the person who's addressing who are a little outside of a, a benevolent social order, a social order that's rational, that, you know, is trying to rationalize the world, you know. I mean, Robert Johnson met the devil on that road, right? And uh, and that kind of illusion there, it's not just, oh, it came into my head, you know, love in vain, but, you know... His presence is sort of reinforcing the fact that those three persons in that poem, you know, the speaker, the person whom the speaker is talking to, and Robert Johnson are all kind of, you know, see themselves very much as outside the social order. Hmm. And are they at a crossroads like Johnson sings? Yeah, that? absolutely. You know, I mean, I think there's a, it's a romantic idea, right? But it's very much an idea that the blues carries along, which is that. Uh, the artist is someone who can't and should not be contained hmm. by the demands and the strictures of society. And uh, I mean, that's just a frame at the beginning of the poem, but it's very important to establish the link between the speaker and the person the speaker is addressing. Mm. You know, and it kind of characterizes them in relationship to social order. And and it comes back in the ambivalence, right, at the end. Mm. That and uh like, I think it's more that there's a music beneath it all. Yeah. You know, they're knives. Yeah. Their providential impulses are a nimbus of knives, a great line. Um and that sonic quality is part of the horror or part of the landscape. And you also have three uh, stanzas, which like the three line blues, right. you know, the there's there's statement, statement, uh, you know, statement, repeated statement, and then this kind of kicker. Yeah, that, I love that. Yeah, yeah, I'm throwing in a lot of that stuff here and there, just little bits of it, you know. Well, I, I guess that's what I would um, want to sort of end with is thinking about, you know, what you're working on now. Is that new for you? Yeah, I mean, I'm 
going to publish a new book in next fall. And, uh, and when I was thinking about the book, I kind of was thinking, well, I'm going to write these clear, limpid abstractions, you know, that were really sort of, you know. Wow, you remarkably, that? <laughs> yeah, I did. You know, I mean, not poems like this, which are about death. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, exactly. Like you thought you would a, write like something different. Yeah, I mean, that's kind of like uh, a meadow filled with yeah butterflies, and or just you know, like things that were like you know, Calder mobiles uh-huh. or stuff like that. Well, that, that would be wonderful and, if one could write that. Yeah, yeah, and I, that, that's kind of the image because I really have always played around with abstraction and never really known what to do with it, but have been very interested and. In, uh, you know, instead, the poems I were write, I started writing were the, these. This was what came. I right, mean, right. this was the kind of thing that came, and uh, with its sort of expressiveness and its emotion, and uh, I didn't think I was going to write personal poems. Yeah. First of all, and I am writing personal poems. And uh, what I did was I would kind of import little bits and fragments of songs and stuff like that. And that was the thing that I retained from the earlier idea that, you know, I would have used this Robert Johnson line, but I would have used it in a very abstract context. It would be a little jewel in a sort of abstract setting, you know, and it would be enigmatic, you know. Instead, those things were transposed. Well, and... I'm for one. I'm happy that you've turned to the personal because uh, I, you know, one can only write when one is writing. You know, and one right. can write. But I also think there's a there's a quality of of what you were talking about, thinking about with Plath, where there's a pulling back, but also a a letting go in a sure. way that I I really admire in these poems. But Jay, thanks so much for talking to us. Yeah, thank you for having me, Kevin. This was fun. Cliffhanging by Vijay Sashadri as well as Sylvia Plath's The Moon and the Yew Tree, can be found on newyorker.com. Vijay Sasadri's latest book is Three Sections. You may subscribe to this podcast, The Fiction Podcast, The Writer's Voice Podcast, and The Politics and More Podcast by searching for The New Yorker in your podcast app. You can hear more poetry read by the authors on newyorker.com and The New Yorker app available from the App Store or from Google Play. The theme music is The Corner by Christian Scott Atunde Ajua, courtesy of Stretch Music and Ropadope. The New Yorker Poetry Podcast is produced by Michelle Moses with help from Hannah Eisenman. I'm Alex Schwartz. I'm Nomi Fry. I'm Vincent Cunningham, and this is Critics at Large, a New Yorker podcast for the culturally curious. Each week, we're going to talk about a big idea that's showing up across the cultural landscape, and we'll trace it through all the mediums we love. Books, movies, television, music, art. And I always want to talk about celebrity gossip, too. Of course. What are you guys excited to cover in the next few months? There's a new uh, translation of The Iliad that's coming out, Emily Wilson. Really excited to see... Whether I can read the Iliad again, whether I'm that literate, I mean, the jury is out. I can't wait to hear Adam Driver go again in an Italian accent in Michael Mann's Ferrari. (laughs) He can't stop. I mean, and and bless him. I can't wait. Molto bene. Molto bene. (laughs) (laughs) We hope you'll join us for new episodes each Thursday. Follow Critics at Large today, wherever you get podcasts. You really don't want to miss this. Don't. Don't miss this. Don't miss it. See you soon. (laughs) 